Welcome everyone to the first episode of Mimosa Talk in 2020. I'm sorry there's been a bit of a delay, but we're getting back on track to deliver you your weekly dose of TV news and updates that you crave. So grab those mimosas and join me, Lizzie, on your TV journey because there's so much to discuss in the world of television. Cheers! Streaming services are popping up overnight, it seems. NBC is launching Peacock sometime on July 15th and has announced a slew of new original programming and hit shows that'll be available on the streaming app. Their tagline is free as a bird, which I guess works. And it's probably for the best that the first tier is free because the shows they're offering just don't seem quite as promising as other shows being offered on primetime networks through Netflix and, of course, Disney+. Plus. The buzz around Disney's streaming service has died down slightly, but as they bring forth the nostalgia factor with all your old Disney favorites, classic movies, nostalgic reboots, empowering shows about female presidents, um, every show they can think of to cater to the Marvel and Star Wars fandoms, and it's only setting you back seven bucks, it just kind of seems like a no-brainer. Peacock is banking on comedy queens like Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, Mindy Kaling to draw in viewers to their service. Polar is producing a coming-of-age uh, comedy about an underdog woman's collegiate soccer team that gets a new coach who used to play the sport herself. It'll be called Division One. Uh, retired pro soccer player Abby Wambach will also executive produce. Polar's sidekick, Tina Fey, is set to produce a musical based on a quote-unquote one-hit wonder group from the 90s that gets sampled by a young rapper. So its members reunite to give the pop star dreams one more shot. They may be grown women, balancing spouses, kids, jobs, debt, aging parents, and shoulder pain, but can't they just be Girls 5 Eva? That's the title of the series, by the way. Um, expecting... Uh, is a show that hails from Mindy Calling and finds Ellie, a single woman who asks her gay best friend to be her sperm donor shortly before her 39th birthday. Um, they've also got reboots uh, and revivals of hits like Saved by the Bell and Punky, Punky Brewster, which will appeal to the 80s babies. Uh, in this new world of streaming wars, there's something for everyone. You simply have to figure out where to invest your money and get the biggest thing for your buck. I'm just waiting for them to make a bundled streaming service where I can pay slightly more but tap into all the programming because honestly, paying for each individual service and flipping back and forth with, between apps has gotten tiring. And yeah, I'm complaining about pushing buttons. This is the world we live in. Like, get used to it. Uh, speaking of streaming service, after the holidays, every single person, their moms, their grandmas, uh, their dogs, they were all watching Joe Goldberg, now Will Bettelheim, uh, fall in love with love, uh, shake off his ex Candace, and put some dead bodies through a meat grinder because ugh, why not? I still cannot look at tacos the same way, but that's beyond the point. Uh, this weekend, Friday, January 24th to be exact, uh, Netflix is taking us all to hell with the release of the third season of Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. It's been less than a year since the second season dropped. I believe it it was around April of 2019. But I'm beyond excited to reconnect with Brina, her mortal friends, and Nicholas Scratch, her boyfriend who loved her so much, he sacrificed himself to eternal damnation. Obviously, since Sabrina is a teenager with teenage hormones, one of her missions is to visit her boyfriend, which means she'll embrace being the queen of hell for him. I always love a good romance story. With the balance off in hell... Heaven, 
and Earth, things are getting a little wonky, yet also much darker than in previous seasons. There's new demons, uh, cheerleading practice, and Sabrina wearing a lot of white colors. Also, sassy Sabrina is a fan favorite, and there's nothing better than Hell declaring that Hell's under new management. Tell him, girl. The official synopsis of the series reads, Part 3 finds Sabrina reeling from the harrowing events of Part 2. Though she defeated her father Lucifer, the Dark Lord, uh, remains trapped within the human prison of her beloved boyfriend, Nicholas Scratch. Um, in anticipation of the season three release, Netflix teamed up with uh, NYX for a Sabrina-inspired makeup collection. The NYX Times Chilling Adventures of Sabrina collection is a limited edition offering that includes some dark and magical products, including a palette with 30 eyeshadows and a variety of lip duos. The palette contains matte shimmer and eyeshadows with fun names like Angel of Death and Salem for the black color and retails for $35. It also contains a spell that reads, for a look sure to enamor, cast a spell of bewitching glamour. Embrace the night or behold the light with the spell book. Any match is right. The spell book also includes recipes for the perfect eyeshadow combos so you can channel your best queen of hell look any day of the week. The palette is ready, sold out online, but it will be available at Ulta Beauty on January 26th. Each of the three lip pairings costs 12 bucks and will allow you to get that Karen and Shipka's red lip look. Um, in other streaming news, fans waiting for the Disney Plus revival of Lizzie McGuire are going to have to wait a little longer as production hit a bit of a snack. The creator of the series, Terry Minsky, stepped away from her role as showrunner, so things are at a bit of a standstill. A Disney spokesperson gave this explanation, quote, Fans have a sentimental attachment to Lizzie McGuire and high expectations for a new series. After filming two episodes, we concluded that we need to move in a different direction creatively and are putting a new lens on the show. So now it doesn't seem like the show isn't happening. It just seems like it's being put on hiatus so that they can figure things out and fans can get the best experience possible. And I, as a fan, appreciate that. We have waited so long and we want this to be worth our time. So if it takes a little longer, so be it. We know that Hilary Duff will reprise her character, her whole family is returning, and Adam Lambert will be back as Lizzie's bestie and former crush Gordo. But if Lelaine isn't interested in returning as Miranda, Game of Thrones alum Sophie Turner is more than interested in the gig. The actress who brought us Sansa Stark took to her Instagram story to convince the show to contact her. Quote, is Miranda appearing in this season because I'm here, I'm available, I am your new Miranda. Lizzie McGuire people, please reach out to me, she hilariously said. Have Hills people call her people and make this happen? Stat. We stand a proactive queen. Um, unless you've been living under a rock, you heard all about Jenna Aniston and Brad Pitt's reunion at the SAG Awards. It was major. There was hugging and Brad held onto Jan's hand as if he regretted ever doing Mr. and Mrs. Smith, falling for Angie, publicly cheating on Jen, embarrassing her, as he should. He may be her lobster, they may have been on a break, but I don't think Aniston forgot any of that. She's just a bigger person who now has the upper hand and can say, look what you lost, boo. Look what you lost. Also, she left nothing to the imagination in that silky dress. Jen was stunning and there was no doubt about it. But there was so much attention on the Brad and Jen situation that many overlooked Jen's major win at the award show. Jennifer won Apple TV, Another streaming service to add to the list of growing services. She won them their first award for outstanding performance by a female actor in a drama series for her leading role as morning news anchor Alex Levy in The Morning Show. 
Like this is a big deal because this is the first individual SAG award Jen has won. Her last one was in 1996 for Outstanding Ensemble, which was with her Friends cast members. It's major, it's big, it's the mood we need going forward in 2020. And since we're talking about Brad and Jen as if it was 2002, let's just continue on this journey and talk about a Friends reunion that's also hitting a standstill a la Lizzie McGuire. What will it take for us to get back a little piece of our childhood? HBO Max Chief Content Officer Kevin Riley gave an update on the status of the reunion, explaining that despite everyone being on board, they're not at a point to give the show a green light, and so the project continues to be in limbo. Apparently, according to Deadline, uh, the unscripted reunion has been paused due to a disagreement about negotiations, which is so frustrating. We're letting money get in the way of this epic, epic reunion. And I know, I know everyone deserves to get paid what they want, and they all have so much clout that they need to get the price that they're asking for. But for fans, this is just this is just a bummer. It's been years since we've seen all of our friends in the same room. And yes, Jen is making up for it by posting reunions with the girls, but it's just not the same. I need them to reunite on the couch at Central Perk, and hopefully that'll happen soon. Uh, let's see. The CW renewed literally all of their shows, even the ones that aren't performing well and getting pretty miserable ratings. So if you're a fan of those shows, congratulations. Also, renewing shows is Freeform. They gave Grownish a fourth season just a few hours after it returned for its third season, and we found out that Zoe's roommate is pregnant. What a twist. Uh, Good Trouble also snagged a renewal for its third season. The second season just premiered on January 15th. We're still waiting on many networks to renew or cancel some of our favorite shows, and while I'm a huge fan of Manifest and Emergence, which I'll be reviewing shortly later in this uh, podcast, the ratings don't look too hot, and it does seem like this may be their last go-around. And it's unfortunate that these shows that are so heavy on mystery and supernatural elements and mythology just don't get more love. Um, other on-the-bubble shows include The Rookie, Perfect Harmony, The Resident, which I keep saying is underappreciated because it's just such a damn good show with an incredible, compelling cast, good stories, plenty of comedic moments on top of all the drama. And people need to stop snoozing on good shows. Uh, other shows um, on the bubble include All Rise and Stumptown. But you know which show gets so much freaking love? And which it's funny because it's a show about searching for love? ABC's The Bachelor. We're starting something new this year for The Bachelor fans, The Bachelor Nation, and this season. So I'm going to be turning this mic over to our Bachelor-loving correspondent, Bachelorette Erin, to give you the juicy 411 on this week's episode. Erin, will you accept this rose? Why, yes, Lizzie, I will. I'm super excited to be here, and I'm here to break down episode three. What happened on Monday night? Who was Peter falling for? What's going on in the mansion? And who are my frontrunners? We're going to get to it all, but I think we need to start with the Champagne Gate. This was a scandal that blew Twitter up. It was probably one of the most dramatic moments that have happened in this season thus far. Even though, again, like I said, it's only episode three. Basically, Kelsey bought a bottle of champagne, wanted to drink it with Peter. Instead, Hannah Ann drank it with Peter, and it became a big fight. A lot of mean words were said, a lot of exchanges, and even the term bullying was passed around, which I think was totally, totally uncalled for. While Champagne Gate is still happening at the mansion, Victoria P. has a one-on-one date with Peter. Now, Victoria is one of my frontrunners, I'm not going to lie. I think she's going to go extremely, extremely far. 
their date ends up going very, very well. So well, in fact, that Victoria drops the L word. Yeah, she says she's actually already starting to fall for Peter. In case you weren't caught up, this is episode three, and she's only been in the Bachelor Mansion for about 10 days. But hey, apparently, she's already in love. Then we go on to a group date. Who comes in to set up the group date? None other than the Bachelor Nation queen, Demi. If you don't remember Demi, she was kind of a villain in Colton's season, but then she really redeemed herself in Paradise last year. So the group date was a pillow fight. Yeah, girls in a pillow fight. I wonder what producer made that up. The girls were vicious, let me tell you. They were hitting each other, kicking, clawing, doing a lot of things that you probably shouldn't do in a pillow fight. But after the group date was over, more drama happened. Apparently, Sydney and Alea do not get along because Sydney thinks she's fake. Alea is now a pageant queen, so what you have to understand is that she's really good at saying the right things and being on when she has to be on. So Sydney thinks that she's only on for the cameras and she's not being her true self. She goes to Peter and goes, "Hey, Alea's fake. She's not genuine, and she's not here for the right reasons." Then Peter does something that totally breaks all girl code. He brings all the girls together and goes. Let's air it out. Girls don't actually do that. We just talk about each other behind each other's backs. We don't actually want to confront anything. Sydney called Alea fake. I want to hear about it. And all the girls are super awkward because they're not going to throw each other under the bus. At the end of the date, though, Peter gives Sydney the group date rose, which is basically saying that he's on Sydney's side and he also thinks Alea is fake. So fast forward to the next day. They have a pool party because it wouldn't be a bachelor without a pool party and all the girls in their bikinis, right? I mean, that just always happens. They have a pool party that completely turns into a snitch fest. Everyone pulls Peter aside on their one-on-ones and says, yes, Alea is fake. She is disgenuine. She turns everything on for the cameras. Now, Peter is just so confused. He has no idea what to do. He takes Alea's side, tries to get her side of the story and vice versa. And I just don't think anyone is telling him what he wants to hear because I think he likes her. But I mean, if it's, you know, 22 against one, you got to think that the one is probably the problem. He's so upset that he ends up canceling the rest of the pool party and goes straight to the rose ceremony. And now let me tell you, this was a very, very dramatic rose ceremony. For the first time ever, Peter was down to two roses. Chris Harrison, our hero, comes in and takes one of the roses away, which means how many girls were supposed to be here, now there's going to be one less. At the end of the day, Peter decides not to take Alea, picks McKenna over her, and then everyone's pretty excited about it because Alea's going home. But then we see Peter go to a back room and talk to a producer and say that he's having some regrets. This happened two seconds ago, and he's already regretting it. Now I just can't wait to see what happens in episode four. We can't wait either, Erin. Um, there's a few Bachelor conspiracies floating around, and Bachelor contestant Jasmine told People that the top three, in her opinion, are Hannah Ann, Madison, and the return of Hannah Brown. Um, the fandom is really divided on this one with people either thinking Hannah and Peter belong together or that she had her chance and blew it. So I want to know where you stand on this Bachelor Nation. And as of episode three, who are your top picks? All right, let's kick off our reviews of some other TV shows. Uh, Batwoman's mid-season premiere was pretty major because Batwoman came out as a lesbian to all of Gotham City. After feeling like she's being pushed back into the closet, Kate Kane struggled with whether or not to give the people of Gotham City uh, this very important clue about her identity. Lucas told her that she doesn't have to give Batwoman all of her qualities, and realistically, if she wants to remain anonymous, she probably shouldn't. But after seeing the people ship her and the officer dubbed as Chris Evans, despite her being, quote, very, very gay, Kate just wasn't having it. 
However, she was fully convinced when she tracked down Gotham's elusive hacker, who was also a high school teenager named Parker, uh, that who was rebelling to see if her parents cared more about her life um, and her being alive than the fact that she was outed as gay. Seeing a young woman struggle with her acceptance um, convinced Batwoman to essentially take off the mask and tell the city the truth about her sexuality, which is good for her. Sexuality shouldn't define a superhero, but for those who do struggle, it's nice to know that there's someone like them out there doing really incredible things. Um, there was also some post-crisis fallout with the return of Beth. Now, I know you're here sitting like, Lizzie, Beth has been around since day one and goes by the name of Alice. But no, 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 you guys, this is Beth from an alternate world who somehow worm, wormholed her way into Gotham and believes that she was just away at a semester abroad. Kate's face said it all, and I cannot wait to see how the series plays this one out. Also, Alice is still deranged and unraveling even more as she tries to create this perfect little family with Kate, who has told her that she's not interested because the sister she wanted is dead. The commander is in prison for allegedly murdering his wife, and Mary is somehow holding it all together, even when we're all here for her if she wants to fall out. Also, continuing on its post-crisis journey was Supergirl, although things in National City have been altered much more drastically by the dissolution of the multiverses. For starters, Lex Luthor is alive. Now, if you didn't watch the Five Night Five show Massive Crossover and are coming into this mid-season premiere... Um, without any of that knowledge, you're probably either A, really, really, really confused, or B, think you're watching some kind of rerun. And it's totally understandable. Lex Luthor now runs the DEO. He managed to convince Lena to work with him on resetting humanity via her pet project, Myriad, and offered to work side by side with Supergirl on this new Earth. Though that seems unlikely, and it probably won't happen. Uh, Lex also teamed up with Brainy towards the end to stop Leviathan. But first, they need to stop a villain brought upon by the crisis. And the Toy Man sees the return of Jeremy Jordan, who longtime fans recognize as Win. The copycat Toy Man is a fitting villain, fitting villain for Jordan, as the original Toy Man was Win's father. It seems like Wynn will be pulling double duty to essentially stop himself, but we're just so glad to see him back, even if it's just for an episode. Uh, Brainy pulled triple duty in this episode as he confronted as he confronted several other Brainies from different multiverses who also wormholds their way to warn him about a disaster. One of those Brainies um, ended up being Evil Brainy, who bottled up his Earth before this crisis hit and wanted to unleash it. Um, unleashing it meant he would destroy both his earth and theirs. So obviously they had to stop him, which forced Brainy to take off his personality inhibitors and finally accept his true self. Fans were pretty, pretty pleased with the result of this though, because Brainy, um, got a more, uh, comic book look, uh, with his, uh, just his green skin and, this crusade against Leviathan and the allegiance to Lex Luthor in order to keep the peace meant that he also had to break up with Neo, which was a little bit heartbreaking. Um, also, Supergirl's crush William, the journalist, also thinks that Lex Luthor might not be who he says he is, which you know just brought our girls so much joy and is going to be the catalyst for this relationship. Um, and also, she's just looking for someone to hate Lex um, as much as she does. So this is going to be great for her. 
manifest is a guilty pleasure in that I have absolutely no idea what's happening half the time, but I watch it with pure dedication. And while I know the odds are against me because the ratings aren't that great, I really hope it doesn't get canceled. This week's episode brought the reveal um, of the major's identity to Ben, Sanvi, and Vance. But it wasn't entirely shocking to us because we've known uh, that Sanvi's psychologist is the major. It's nice that our passengers now are up to speed, but these reveals are only lessened in shock value because we're already ahead of the game and they're just catching up. Nothing is surprising to the audience anymore, which is really unfortunate. Um, Sanvi was instrumental in getting the major to fall for her trap. So in that regard, she's the star of the show right now. She managed to get more done than Ben and Mick combined in both seasons. Grace is getting her own callings now via her baby. And she's so happy to just be part of the popular club. Her recent calling came from a mother at her yoga class named Erica. She was told to open her eyes and saw a a gargoyle, which honestly made me chuckle because... It was kind of cheesy and corny, but then again, this is manifest and we're used to it. So it's like, fine, whatever. Uh, Erica turned out to be a terrible person who thinks Grace's son, Cal, and her unborn baby are abominations. And I mean, homegirl went as far as wishing Grace that she lost the baby. So um, just like a crappy person, but it's not entirely surprising since she was revealed to be the wife of the professor who gave Ben the job at the university. A university with gargoyles. Get it? Get it? Yeah. Uh, So absolutely no one can be trusted. Ben's gig is not going to be as kosher as he thought it would be. Grace can't figure out her callings, but I don't blame her on this one because they don't really make sense and you don't want to be nice to some lady that tells you that you should lose your baby. Um, Sanvi is the asset they all need. And Cal did... um, Cal convinced Mick to save Zeke and she did him a solid and went to bat for him to break him out of prison, a prison he so foolishly put himself into in the first place. Now, in order to break him out, it meant that she had to throw Jared, her ex, under the bus for the night of the shooting. But at this point, someone needs to hold that man accountable for something. And Jared's been kind of the worst this season, so I don't really feel bad for him. Um, What do you guys think is going to happen now that everyone is the same page as the major? Are they going to have a leg up on her or is she going to figure it out? I interviewed Sarah Colley for TV Fanatic, um, a site that I freelance for. Uh, Sarah is the director of photography on season two of Manifest, and she brings the whole world of Manifest to life. It's a visual playground for her, and she told me a little bit about how she stylizes the calling, what goes into putting them together, how they affect the storyline moving forward. She also teased a bunch of stuff about the season two finale, which she said was her favorite episode to shoot, and talked about how Jeff Rake wants New York to essentially be a character in the show, which is why you see so many shots of Mick and Ben out and about in the city now. So if you're someone who is interested in cinematography, she also has some really great advice for students. That interview will be going live soon on tvfanatic.com. So think of this as like a sneak peek to the the goods and just go check it out when it is live. Um, I'd greatly appreciate that. Godfriended me is on hiatus for now because of football and music. Seriously, the upcoming Grammys and the Super Bowl, which to me is a J-Lo and Shakira concert anyways, has fudged up the show's schedule, which is why it won't be on for a few weeks. Um, But I'll briefly tap into 
uh, what happened the last episode because it was important and I think it left on a pretty good cliffhanger. Um, the, ep- the episode saw Arthur and Trish finally getting hitched. It's been a long time coming and sadly their big day was overshadowed by way too many storylines that were squeezed in and fighting for your attention. Miles wasn't just the best man, he was also trying to talk to Alphonse to prove he's behind the God account. Um, But then he got a friend suggestion in Julie, who we found out was Trisha's daughter that we've just never met, never heard about. And he got deeply involved in her pregnancy and divorce storyline. It was to the point where Miles seemed to be crossing lines when he should have just uh, stepped back and allowed Julie and her soon-to-be ex-husband to figure things out. Um, At the end, the two were still divorcing, but they salvaged their friendship and Julie offered to move to San Francisco so he could accept his dream job, which is essentially a happy ending for the show, but it also seemed really forced. Most people wouldn't just up and move their lives and are they just really going to live together and raise this baby while also separating? I feel like this storyline should have just extended a little bit over a few episodes instead of getting tied up in one fell swoop and taking up so much time from a wedding that honestly just deserved so much more attention. Also, as expected, Alphonse was not behind the God account and all fingers are pointing to a hacker dude that told Rakesh and Miles about Alphonse in the first place. So when they visited his apartment um, after finding that out, he was nowhere to be found because of course he wasn't. He left. He knew they were onto him. Um, Allie confirmed that she does have breast cancer, which then convinced Miles to accept the role of the prophet within the God account and give up love with Kara. It's nice that he'll just make sacrifices to save his sister, but you know, the God account never asked him to. So this whole time, it's just Miles going on a whim and following what someone told him would happen, not necessarily what the God account expected of him. So anyways, that's where we left off. Emergence is almost at the end, and like I said, there's no good news on the renewal front, which is upsetting because the show's mystery is actually so good and the cast is so talented. Um, The penultimate episode revealed that Dear Brooks is alive, though he wasn't in good shape and the FBI was coming for him. Joe helped him escape, but eventually he knew he had to turn himself in, which led to this steamy kiss between the agent and the chief of police. Like, It's getting hot in here, you guys, just like thinking about it. Huh. Okay. Brooks expected to get fired, but instead some Department of Justice dude swept in and was like, we know what you're doing. We don't care. We're clearing you. Have a good day. And Brooks didn't ask any questions, but he's smart enough to know that he needed to dump the phone, the car, and the badge they gave him. He also realized that he was being followed, so he told Joe right after their makeout session again. Uh, The person following him was Loretta, who looked just like the evil AI Helen, and that's because she was Helen's creator. Long story short, the AI she made uh, started making its own AI and killing her whole team. So she's been trying to end Helen ever since, but with no luck. She makes a trade with Joe. She She wants the exabyte disc with Piper's source code in exchange for a weapon that'll kill Helen. And Joe takes the bait, though she doesn't actually give her the real exabyte disc because Joe is smart, y'all. Joe is smart. Now, the weapon that she uh, that Loretta gave to kill Helen requires them to get very, very, very close to the AI. And that seems almost impossible as we see how powerful Helen has gotten with the code that Emily forcefully wrote for her. 
Also, the upload began, which the upload is something that Benny described as uh, essentially a dump of every AI's information into one. And once it's complete, all of the AI is going to be gone and their human bodies will just be shells, which I believe means will make Helen the ultimate all-knowing AI and kind of kickstart her plan to world domination. I think. It gets a little fuzzy here since Benny, who we assume is a good guy again, doesn't really know Helen's full plan, but he's trying, he's trying, and he's making great strides, so let's just give him credit where credit's due. Considering Helen has been killing all other AIs like it's nobody's business, though, I think it's a good assumption that she really wants to be the alpha AI. Um... Brooks and Joe went to Plum Island to stop her, but you guys, they do not stand a chance with their little guns and their little human bodies. Piper knows that, and she was pleading with Alex to help her break Benny out of jail so they can go save Joe, because if they don't, she said Joe is never coming back home. Unlike Joe, though, Alex actually listens to the super powerful little robot, so he is going to break Benny out of jail, and help is on the way, Joe, don't worry. My theory is that Ben will sacrifice himself to kill Helen and thus prove to Joe that he truly is sorry for betraying her. And if there isn't a second season and the show does get canceled, we may as well put all the, we may as well just end this whole storyline and have Piper and Joe and the whole family just have a happy ending, right? Chicago PD delivered an intense episode that saw intelligence taking down their own men. A drug bust revealed that a handful of cops were dirty cops that were stealing drugs sent to the burner and selling them on the streets. That's Chicago for you. Uh, Darius Walker, Void CI, and scapegoat for literally everything was involved because of course he was. And he agreed to help Void under one condition. He'd no longer have to be a CI. Mayor Crawford signed off on it and intel intelligence went in on their plan to make the buy, test the drugs, gather the evidence... Um, and once they did, the prosecutor told them that they didn't have an airtight case and requested the name of the CI, which basically burned Darius. Once Darius knew he was going to be exposed as a snitch, he ordered his men to ambush all three cops and murdered them in the most gruesome scene I've ever seen on Chicago PD. And that's saying something. I mean, this was like a, something straight out of a horror film. There was, I mean, it was just brutal. Darius is ruthless though, so it was expected, but that also means that his punishment would be equally as ruthless. When Upton found out that he was uh, walking free yet again without paying for any of the crap that he did, she couldn't take it and orchestrated a plan where she informed his men that he was the snitch. As Voight said, she had to know the outcome of her plan, and judging by the satisfied, satisfied smirk on her face, she was pleased with it. Upton is evil, and it's kind of scary, but also kind of awesome. Like, don't mess with her, but she'll also save your life. Um, will she come back from this, or will she just kind of be as numb to everything as Voight? Uh, honestly, my favorite episode moment of the episode was Voight telling her that nothing keeps him up at night because he's already accepted the kind of person that he is, and that kind of honesty and realism is honestly just what makes Voight such a badass character. Uh, Chicago Med uh, keeps upping their storylines to pack in the most drama they can in a single hour, uh, actually 45 minutes if you count in the uh, commercials, but whatever. Uh, and honestly, it's kind of been doing well for them. I've really been enjoying this season a lot more than previous seasons. 
Uh, April is still really into Crockett, and she's beginning to realize that trying to push him out of her mind by starting IVF with fiancé Choi is not the answer. The guilt is going to eat her up from the inside, and eventually, she's going to have to come clean. And at this point, it's going to be a lot worse that she lied to Ethan in the first place and upheld that lie by making him look like a fool. Uh, Crockett has been a very surface character up until this point, but this episode changed that when it revealed that he may have a dark and painful past. His decision to save both children in the terrible bus crash stemmed from his belief that no parent should lose a child, which seems to be something that has happened to him. Uh, Crockett's best attribute as a doctor is that he owns his decisions and he doesn't waver. When he said they were going to move the two children together like shish kebabs, that's exactly what they did despite objections from virtually every single doctor. Uh, Crockett believed in himself. He believed in this team and his abilities and they'd be able that they'd be able to save both children instead of picking one for a better chance. Um, and though it was risky and they came pretty close to losing both kids, he came through and saved both lives. It's, it's too bad that he didn't feel prouder of his accomplishments. I'm also picking up some chemistry between Crockett and Nat. And honestly, that I wouldn't be opposed to that relationship either. Um, she needs someone like Crockett who will stand his ground and have a good reason for it and never like waver or rethink it or change his mind because she wants him to after all the, the crap drama she had with Will. Speaking of Will, his heart is always in the right place, but he's in way over his, his head this time. Um, his safe injection clinic is illegal, and it's not going to stand or wraps for too long when he's constantly bringing in addicts into the ER. But you know what? Whatever. I can stand behind the clinic if Halstead doesn't foolishly risk his own license every time and get personally involved with each patient, but he does. Um, it's really cool that he believes in his patients and wants to do everything for them, but realistically, it's not always deserved. His addict patient on this episode needed help, but he also told Will that um, he would just end up back to using. And even after Halstead went to bat for him, his girl was smuggling him drugs. And at some point, addiction becomes a lifestyle and not everyone wants to break it. So I think Halston has to pick his battles very, very carefully here. Um, so he is helping the right people who really, truly deserve it and want to make a change in their life. However, Halstead did have some success with a female patient, so uh, who who promised to turn her life around and was really grateful for his help. So he's definitely going to be sticking around uh, the clinic and probably further damaging his career. Cool, cool, cool. Um, there, then there was Maggie, who was looking for a donor for a sick man named Gary that she met um, during her cancer treatments. While she wasn't successful and Gary passed away um, right as she found a match, which was unfortunate, she did manage to mobilize a whole waiting room to get tested and matched a bunch of people with organ organ donors um, that needed them. So look at Maggie doing the Lord's work. Uh, this Is Us is doing something new this year and offering a big three trilogy. Each episode will focus on one of the siblings and seems to go through their trials and tribulations. Randall was the first one up and his episode delivered an incredible hour of TV that opened up the dialogue about mental health and anxiety. A lot has been going on in his life right now, including Rebecca's diagnosis, keeping that diagnosis a secret, his the stress of his job as a councilman, and on top of it, an intruder broke into his household. Now, I was convinced the guy was a figment of Randall's imagination, um, 
but that was just like a, a fabrication of stress that he was going through, but he was very much real and it shook Randall to his core, which I don't think he expected. Unfortunately, Randall put on a brave face like his father always taught him. And he tried to go about his day without acknowledging all the trauma that he underwent. And, it, and it's a lot for anyone, as you know, Beth said, like anybody would have been triggered by this. Um, obviously we knew it was going to end terribly for Randall, um, when he didn't acknowledge it. Since This Is Us expertly plays with multiple timelines, Randall's anxiety is layered in both the past and the present as they intertwine to show us that Randall's nightmares have consistently been a byproduct of his stress and something that he's learned to live with but never learned to manage. We see it when he's a child sleeping in his big boy bed for the first time and he's terrified of monsters. And then we see it in college shortly after his father's death and when he experiences nightmares about like losing both of his parents. The episode touches upon the stigma of mental health, um, specifically seeking out help, in particular for men of color. Randall refuses to talk to someone, even when Darnell, Malik's father, assures him that it's okay and he and it's and therapy has helped him. By the end, all the anger and fear that Randall has bottled up inside is unleashed when he thwarts robbery. Um, he's hailed as a hero, the city's very own Batman. But he doesn't feel like it, and it is that breaking point. He calls up Kevin, who has always been there to manage Randall's anxiety. Um, we know that as we've seen it with uh, Randall when he had a panic attack at school and also in season one at his old job. Kevin is there for him, and he sits on the phone with his brother to help calm him down. It's a good start for Randall, but it isn't enough. It's good to have someone you can rely on when things get tough, someone you can talk to, but it's unfair to put that insane amount of pressure on a person who is also going through his fair share of demons. Which brings us to part two that's coming next week. And this, this episode established that Kevin was on his way to see Sophie, his ex, to attend her father's funeral. And it was either a really decent idea or a really terrible one. And I feel like it was a terrible one because... We know what went down a certain way because Kevin was in bed with um, her after Randall calls him, or at the very least, we think it's her. The upcoming episodes uh, call Kevin and Sophie's relationship true love, and she's essentially the one that got away. But is it a really a relationship that Kevin should be returning to? I don't know. In all fairness, uh, he's a much better person now than he was when he broke Sophie's heart seasons ago. He's grown through... Uh, he's grown up through his time with Nikki and he now wants to settle down and start a family and just be an adult. But the question is, will Sophie be the girl that he settles down with? I hope it's, I hope she isn't because I thought their relationship was a little bit toxic. However, all signs point to Sophie being the pregnant wife in the flash forward, um, that we see in the big threes, a 40th birthday. Now, Sophia Bush, who appeared as Lizzie, hey, for one episode, uh, told Women's Wear Daily that um, she thinks that her appearance was just temporary. She's just she went on a date with Kevin because he was her hall pass, but she doesn't think that she's coming back. But that being said, the co-showrunner uh, told TV Line that they love her so much that she could be back, and we all know how much This Is Us loves to play tricks on us. Legacies brought us the story of the necromancer after he was spit out by Malivor, and it was highly entertaining to just see a man who wielded so much power become powerless, and then finesse his way back to being the king of the underworld, in the real world. 
Um, poor Brad didn't know what he was getting himself into when he aligned with Ted. And now he has to serve by his side as he raises monsters from the dead and plots to kill all the students at the Salvatore school. Um, while that was happening, Josie was trying to dispose of the dark magic uh, that Clark siphoned out of her um, with Hope's help. The moment helped bond them and repaired their fractured relationship, but things will be taking a dark twist as the necromancer is after that very magic and teases, uh, future teasers show Josie turning in what looks like evil Willow from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So it's about to get really, really interesting. Landon was tasked with keeping tabs on Sebastian to see if he deserves a second chance at the school. And Sebastian was on his best behavior. He had everybody fooled and convinced except for Alaric. Because a dad always knows. And a dad is always one step ahead of everyone. He read about Sebastian in the books and still gave him the option for redemption. Which Sebastian didn't take. So now he's locked up somewhere by dear old dad who's not pleased that Sebastian had Lizzie all over the school. Look, I'm just upset someone toyed with our girl um, and her emotions because that's not cool. Um, Conrad Hawkins got his groove back on the resident. Yay! After being ousted from Chastain and trying to find his way back for a few episodes, the perfect opportunity landed at Conrad's feet. It almost felt too convenient, but there is no resident without Conrad at Chastain, and there were only so many ways that the show could keep him involved outside of the hospital. But now that he's back and he has the upper hand, he'll be able to challenge Logan Kim and Kane and Red Rock. And he's virtually untouchable because he has the backing of the richest man in town. He is the physician for a soccer team and he landed his position as chief resident. Conrad did that. Provost stepped up to the plate and challenged the internal medicine department where he's doing his rotations after a patient almost died because both the department and the ER refused to admit the patient. It's all about money for them, and because of it, a woman suffered a stroke that they could have easily caught early on. This is the Pravesh I like to see. The one that realizes that breaking the rules is necessary sometimes. The one that puts forth everything Conrad taught him instead of playing it safe. The episode also gave us some of the best moments ever with the team up between Belle, AJ, and Conrad to diagnose a patient. Belle and AJ hyping each other up after realizing they have no idea what's going on or what's wrong with the patient was some of their best work on the series. As for Mina, she had to hand over her baby, Michelle, to Adaku. Okay, see, and I said her baby, but it's actually Adaku's baby that Mina was taking care of. Um... Adaku is now awake and she's ready to be a mother. And Mina was a little hesitant about giving the baby up because she grew attached to her. But I think it's also for the best. She's always going to be the godmom, the godmom, and maybe this will help her realize that she doesn't need to live a life of isolation dedicated solely to her career. She can have a family and she could still be passionate about her work. She can have the best of both worlds, which I secretly hope will bring her to the realization that she really does want to pursue her feelings for AJ. I mean, I love their friendship, but those two would be so cute together. And he loves her. She loves him. They need to get together, you know? Uh, Dynasty kicked off their mid-season uh, premiere with the return of Alexis and her new face. The face belonged to Elaine Hendricks, who's best known for her incredible work as Meredith Blake on The Parent Trap. 
I may be in the minority here, but Nicola Sheridan didn't do it for me as Alexis. There was something missing that I feel that Elaine has and she will bring to the character. Her comments in this episode were already snarkier and her energy elevated the episode despite those very, very, very weak ratings. And yes, Dynasty was renewed. They were one of the shows renewed because they have an international streaming deal that's keeping the show afloat for the handful of fans like myself. To keep it short and sweet, Alexis tried to prove that Blake murdered Mac, but was unsuccessful because Fallon was able to put a hole in her story. The real, ju- the, the real juicy moment came when Fallon realized that she believed her father when he said he didn't commit murder, but he was actually responsible and Crystal confessed. So a classic how to get away with murder that played out right in front of our eyes. Um, Liam and Adam both survived the tussle at the winery, though Adam left with a few broken ribs um, and was ousted from the mansion for burning down Blake's business. So he lost daddy's love and honestly, he deserved it. He deserved a lot worse, but we'll take this for now. Too bad he isn't completely gone. Um, and he hasn't gone too far because he's shacking up at Alexis's old apartment near the mansion after she moved in with her now husband, Jeff Colby. Um, Liam didn't seem to want to pursue any action against Adam, despite now remembering he was responsible for the accident that led to his amnesia. Come on, Liam, make him pay. Um, Riverdale acted like a teen drama for the first time ever when it gave us a classic high school football game between Riverdale and Stonewall Prep. Obviously, Stonewall Prep won because they play dirty, but it was just a fun way to tap into the, te- into the teen drama that's been missing from the series as it dealt with serial killers, cults, and like everything in between. Jughead got into Yale, but there's something seriously fishy about the whole ordeal and how Brett suggested they be roomies again. Um, I don't trust anything that comes out of Brett's mouth or anything that happens within the confines of Stonewall Prep. Um, Veronica is entering the family's whiskey business despite being underage, and she figured out a wicked formula that incorporates Riverdale's pride and joy, the maple syrup business run by the Blossoms, aka Cheryl, since she's literally the only one left in the family. So these two are going to team up for what is probably going to be a multi-million dollar whiskey business, and they're both under the age of 21. That's Riverdale for you. Archie spent most of the episode prepping for the game and connecting with Uncle Frank, who just honestly seems like bad news. Um, the moment he gave Mad Dog those pills, you knew it was going to be trouble. Mad Dog may have impressed a recruiter, but I don't think that the storyline is completely over. And the injury that he sustained and then tried to like numb with the pills is probably going to be a problem. Um, Betty was putting her best journalistic foot forward, but that didn't sit well with Mr. Honey, though he was totally behind her idea to start a quiz team and challenge Stonewall. Betty's desire to beat Brett is obviously dangerous, as evidenced by that final scene, which jumps one month ahead and shows Betty cleaning out Jughead's room and crying. Bet informs, Brett informs her that Jughead isn't going to Yale, probably because he's dead, um, but he and Betty will see each other in New Haven, which, which is odd because... Betty didn't get into Yale, um, unless her jealousy over Jughead's admission is the reason she clobbered him over the head. It's hard to tell what Riverdale has up their sleeves here, but I'm eager to just figure out this mystery because if Jughead really is dead, then I'm out. But I also don't believe that Betty would ever kill the love of her life. So yeah, The Good Place is coming to an end sadly. And William Jackson Harper, who plays Chidi, said this about the series finale airing on January 30th. 
quote, it's very complete and it doesn't give you everything you want, but it gives you everything that you need. It was very emotional. I think it's all tied up into the fact that we're all saying goodbye. It really posits uh, some interesting theories about our storytelling and about what our view of life actually is. I don't want to spoil it, but it's really effective. I can't wait to see how people respond. Last, we saw our human friends, plus Demon Michael and Janet. They were off in a hot air balloon to the good place, for real this time. They made it, but something tells me that the good place isn't all that it's cracked out to be. There's been so many moments that like alluded to paradise not really being paradise, or people getting sick of a good thing too quickly. And that's exactly what fans believe is going to happen. But it's hard to feel any type of way when there's not much context as to what's to come. All I know is that finales tend to be underwhelming because after such a wild ride in the afterlife, how can anything compete? Then again, this is the good place. And if there's anything we learned from that wild ride, it's that uh, we have to trust the people who took us on it. Um, And they always have one last trick up their sleeves. And that wraps up this episode of Mimosa Talk, everyone. Uh, Thank you so much for joining and listening Here's my shameless plug. Craveview TV is expanding. We've added some awesome writers that have delivered fantastic pieces about the good place, the lessons it's taught us. There's a piece about the 100 and Clark, and even a piece about how to create the iconic Game of Thrones theme song. Plus, we're also looking for writers. So if you're interested or you know anyone, please holler. Um, There's also reviews of all the shows that I've mentioned in this podcast, plus more. And they go into way more depth and analysis than I do um, here. So if TV is your thing, I encourage you to check it out. Um, please follow Craveview TV at socials um, at Craveview TV and Mimosa Talk at Mimosa Talk. There's a lot more where all of this came from, and we want you to be connected to all of it as we share this TV experience together. Uh, you can also comment and let us know your thoughts. Uh, about your favorite shows, episodes, what you agree with, what you don't agree with. Um, And we're like really eager to just chat with you. Um, But for now, we must part ways. I am Lizzie. Thank you so much for listening to Mimosa Talk. And cheers to TV, my friends.